This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been called the next generation of the Internet, blockchain, a word that's increasingly making its way into our lexicon. And Colorado ranks among the top states for businesses working on this. This session, state lawmakers can expect to consider legislation dealing with blockchain technology. The thing is, it's not necessarily easy to explain. But we'll do right by it in Disruptors, our series about entrepreneurialism and emerging business ideas. You could call blockchain the ultimate disruptor, as we'll hear from David Gold. He's CEO of Denver-based Dapix, which is trying to make blockchain easier to use, essentially. Gold is also a frequent speaker on this technology. David, welcome to the program. Hi, glad to be here. When you give talks on blockchain to explain what it is, I understand that you start with cryptocurrencies, things like Bitcoin. How do they help us understand blockchain? Well, uh, you know, cryptocurrency, it's interesting that it's called cryptocurrency because the real innovation behind the technology that, that's behind Bitcoin, which most people have now heard about, is actually not the cryptography at all. The cryptography is uh, is something that people use every day on the web with anytime they go to a website that has a little lock or HTTPS in it. Um, that's the same sort of technology. The real innovation behind Bitcoin is the blockchain. And the blockchain is the concept of a distributed ledger. Um, Ledgers are just simple records of transactions, uh, pluses and minuses that accountants keep and bookkeepers keep and computers keep inside of companies. And this uh, blockchain changes all that so you don't have to have a central person doing that anymore. It's distributed, but then how do you trust it? Well, again, that's part of the innovation that that is there that's not captured in in the the cryptocurrency moniker. Blockchain technology changes the paradigm from one where you have to have a trusted third-party intermediary, which we use all the time. Think about banks and uh, real estate agents and all these people who sit in the middle of trusted transactions of value. Middlemen and middlewomen. Exactly. Middle people, yeah. Um, And instead, we have uh, a whole network of computers that have a shared ledger uh, that they all are sharing. And the real innovation is how they're able to come to consensus around the truth and what should be added to that ledger without having any individual trusted third party in the middle of that. Now, uh, nothing could be less sexy, perhaps, than a ledger. And yet this is potentially revolutionary. Could it replace banks? Could it replace real estate agents? Yeah, so it certainly could cause many industries and I think will cause many industries at a minimum to have to change dramatically. Um, Banks may never go away, but they may morph into something that's very different uh, in a world of blockchain uh, where currency and value can be transacted between two parties without having a bank in the middle of that transaction. Uh, The types of services that banks need to provide will, will evolve and change. How have you seen blockchain already change dramatically? Something that we're accustomed to. So maybe an example of how it is already transforming our lives. Well, I think it's very early. Um, you know, this uh, I, the corollary I would draw is to the, the late 80s or early 90s with the internet as the World Wide Web was, was you know, just starting to maybe emerge in the early 90s. Um, people could envision a lot of the things that it could do that we all take for granted today. But back then, um, none of those things were possible. And a lot of people thought that it was crazy that they would ever be possible. Uh, the blockchain is, 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 the technology is in a very similar space today. So the, the really the initial 
you know disruptive innovation that's come about is is the fact that with with bitcoin or with with many of the blockchain technologies that are out there there is the ability for a person to send value to another party on the other side of the world without anybody in the middle of that transaction and for it to take minutes and cost uh, very very little to do so and does that make the transaction harder to track easier perhaps for criminals to take advantage of uh, as much opportunity as there is for good, is there opportunity, if you will, for evil? You know, um, before I answer the question direct directly, I would I would uh, mention that every technology in the history of mankind has been used by criminals, starting with the wheel, because it enabled them to get to and from the crime scene faster. So, you know, this is there's nothing new about a technology being used by criminals, and people forget that the internet and the World Wide Web is and has been since its inception used by criminals to help them do bad. Bad things. Blockchain is no different. There are criminals and bad people who use it, um, but the core innovation and the value it can provide goes way, way, way beyond that. And so, interesting to your question of um, of privacy and anonymity, um, blockchains are by definition public ledgers, meaning hmm. that the ledgers that are on these shared computers are accessible to anyone. So the question becomes the information that's kept there and how and what is on it and what it can tell you about people. The most of the the uh, people in the uh, a law enforcement business and the FBI and so forth, I think they would tell you that they do a pretty good job of tracing bad people who use Bitcoin and other things to do bad things. Now, you talk about these ledgers and that these are distributed over multiple, what, servers around the world? Yes, correct. Is there anyone serving as the ledger keeper? Are there sort of people behind this or does blockchain run on its own? So there are people and companies that run what are called the nodes on any blockchain. So on Bitcoin, there are people who run these nodes called Bitcoin miners. And in these distributed ledgers, there's typically no company behind it. That's part of the business model innovation. Instead, you have individuals and companies that are finding it economically valuable to spend the money to run these computers on on the nodes because the way that the the distributed ledgers are built, they actually get compensated with the economics associated with Bitcoin, for example. So those that are running nodes actually get paid some Bitcoin to run the nodes. But you don't have to be part of a company to do that. Okay. And just to be clear, Bitcoin and blockchain, they're not interchangeable. Blockchain is a much broader term. Correct. Bitcoin but- is a specific implementation of of blockchain. And, and Bitcoin was the first real innovation to take blockchain technology and put it into use in a way that that really has taken hold and grown. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about blockchain. This is a term perhaps you have heard more and more of, and we're discussing its potential with David Gold. He's CEO of Denver-based Dapix, which works with blockchain, and Gold is a frequent speaker on the technology. Here is an excerpt of a TED Talk that describes blockchain in an interesting way. Don Tapscott is a Canadian executive who compares it to the Internet that we're all familiar with. So what if there were not only an Internet of information, what if there were an Internet of value? An Internet of value. Elsewhere, a New York Times piece described blockchain as Uber without Uber or Airbnb without Airbnb. What do you see as the potential of blockchain? Yeah, no, I think those are all great uh, descriptions. Uh, That is the true innovation of blockchain, the ability 
to um, exchange value between any two parties in a very fluid and frictionless way without any trusted third-party intermediaries in the middle of that. And that so goes, without PayPal, without Venmo. Right. And it goes way beyond just currency. The ability um, for two parties to someday engage in a real estate transaction uh, and to exchange uh, you know, the ownership of that real estate without all the, the intermediaries that have to be involved in that today when the final result is really just a change of a name on a ledger. Um, I own it instead of you on it. Colorado's previous governor, John Hickenlooper, created a blockchain council just last year to help leverage the technology, but also to protect consumers. Uh, as I mentioned, the legislature is again poised to debate what regulations are necessary, if any. Uh, no one knows exactly who developed blockchain technology. What, when does it start to appear? I understand that it has, it was around the time of the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, it was uh, it was around that time frame, and I you know most people believe that Bitcoin specifically was around that time frame that the uh, uh, the impetus for the white paper that described the first uh, generation of Bitcoin did you know was was motivated in part by that financial crisis where a whole bunch of trusted intermediaries caused the uh, the financial system to crash. Uh, both both uh, private sector ones and government ones uh, were involved in that crash. Um, so and this was in some ways. Uh, a finger wagging at government and a finger wagging at the companies who were supposed to protect consumers. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'd say that as much as, you know, innovation is about finding solutions to problems and doing things better. And so clearly 2008 was a big problem. And so the way to look at the Bitcoin uh, white paper specifically is here's a potentially better way for us to exchange value where maybe these sorts of things can't happen. Uh, Maybe we can end up in a better place where we're all safer and can have a more trusted concept of the value that we're trading with each other. There are some who believe this is the great equalizer, that this kind of direct transaction might engage more people in the economy and even help the poor. Do you think that's true? Um, I do think there's elements of this that are an equalizer. And uh, with blockchain, I do think that we are seeing and we will see that, interestingly, um, third world nations are going to be a significant driver of the technology. Here in the United States, we look at the dollar and we don't think twice about it. But if you go to Venezuela or you know, Zimbabwe in past history and other countries, um, they don't trust their currency. Most of the world, I would suggest to you, doesn't have a lot of trust in their, their fiat currency, the currency of their government. So the idea of having a different way to store their value that is safer for them and that they can transact easily with other parties um, is very, very valuable to those people. And it is it is an equalizer. Where does this word come from before we go blockchain? Yeah, so the, the, the real innovation is the blockchain. So uh, the, the word blockchain comes from the fact that a ledger is a long list of transactions. Uh-huh. The way that the technology works is it collects these transactions over short periods of time, and then one, can, one computer on the network is effectively randomly selected um, to add a group of these transactions to the list, to the ledger. So they're, they're grouped together in a block and connected to the chain of history. And so the blockchain is the history of all transactions on the ledger. Value today and the exchange of value is largely nothing more than a bunch of debits and credits on a ledger. People don't think of it that way, but the vast majority of even dollars don't physically exist. The vast, vast majority, well over 90% of U.S. dollars don't physically exist. They're nothing but debits and credits on a ledger. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you very much. David Gold is CEO of Denver-based DAPIX. We talked about blockchain technology in our series, Disruptors.
If you're a coffee lover, this next story may perk up your ears. 60% of wild coffee species are at risk of extinction, some within the next 10 or 20 years. The culprits? Climate change, deforestation, and development. Sharada Krishnan is an expert on the coffee plant. She even owns a coffee farm in Jamaica, and she's horticulture director at the Denver Botanic Gardens. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Today. I'll note that you weren't part of the study, but you've worked on coffee conservation. Are you surprised by the findings? No, the findings, I think, uh, was predictable. And I have worked on wild coffee in Madagascar in the past, and I have seen live where uh, they have, you can see that they are threatened quite a bit. Threatened by those forces we mentioned, development yes. and climate change. Now, it's important to know that you're saying wild coffee. What does that mean? Wild coffee are not, a lot of these are not cultivated, but they are belong to the same genus Caffea. And they are wild relatives, what we call as crop wild relatives. And in the future, we need to go into these crop wild relatives to see if they may have some traits that could uh, confer either resistance to pests or diseases or drought tolerance and those type of characteristics. So there may be characteristics in the wild coffee that benefit the coffee drinker uh, when they are integrated into the stuff that's raised on farms like yours in Jamaica. Yes, definitely. Okay. I suppose at one point all coffee was wild to some yes, extent. Yes, de- yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so w- say just a bit more about what threatens coffee, and is it a global problem? Yes, uh, the coffee species are predominantly in Africa, Madagascar, and a few species and a couple of the Indian Ocean Islands, and a few in uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and one in Australia. And a majority are in about half of the species are in Madagascar. Wow. Yeah, about 59 species come from Madagascar. And uh, my work has been in Madagascar, and a lot of the threats are deforestation has been a huge problem there, as well as climate change. What are ways of conserving wild coffee? Uh, So coffee conservation is a little tricky because you cannot conserve coffee plants as seeds. Uh, You may all know about uh, the... um, a global seed vault, uh, which some we call them doomsday vault up in uh, Svalbard in the Arctic, where a lot of the crop species are conserved as seeds. Unfortunately, coffee cannot be conserved as seeds. So we have to conserve them as living plants, as what we call as field gene banks. It's just like a botanic garden where we have plants in uh, the out in the out in the open. And so that's what field gene banks are. So coffee needs to be conserved in such a way but along with that, there are the threats of, uh, as an example, in Madagascar, there was a gene bank that was completely wiped out because of a cyclone. So oh. those type of threats or pests or diseases, something happens, the whole uh, gene bank can be wiped out. Okay, so you can't just store wild coffee in a bank. Why not? What is it about the coffee seed that allows it... Uh, Being a tropical crop, uh, there are two types of seeds, what we call orthodox seeds and recalcitrant, recalcitrant seeds. Orthodox and recalcitrant. Yes. Okay, new vocabulary for me. And a lot of the crop species, rice or wheat, are all orthodox seeds that can go into cold storage, whereas coffee is a recalcitrant which cannot be stored uh, in cold storage. 
they lose their viability in less than a year. I love calling it recalcitrant. It's as if the seed is stubborn yes. and will not be conserved in these doomsday uh-huh. banks. So I suppose conservation depends on having somewhat protected land where you would grow these wild coffee plants. Is that happening and where? Yeah, it is happening. There are a lot of gene banks that have been established in most coffee-producing countries. Uh, During the 60s and the 70s, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, 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 predicting the threat to coffee, they did um, numerous collecting expeditions, and all of these uh, seeds that they collected from these collecting missions were backed up in uh, many global gene banks. But those were from the 60s and 70s, and a lot of the gene banks are now 70-plus years old. And so the trees are getting old. So with that comes what we call genetic erosion. So these have to be maintained, but they also have to be replaced to a certain extent. Yes. Now, is this being done in Colorado? I wonder if there are wild coffee species growing here as something of a doomsday bank. Uh, No, we do not have wild coffee, but eventually I would love to have it in our botanic garden collections. Okay. How might this affect the coffee that I drink? So I think of those as the two primary beans, right? Like, is it Robusto and Arabica? Arabica and Robusta are the two cultivated coffee. Predominantly, Arabica has a better flavor and lower caffeine. So that is the more preferred uh, coffee, which originally is from Ethiopia and South Sudan. And how might what is happening to wild coffee species, the fact that more than half of them are threatened, how might that affect the cup of coffee that I drink? So in the future, uh, breeding, I mean, Arabica coffee itself is threatened by climate change. And uh, Arabica is very limited in where it can grow. So with climate change, uh, as uh, uh, regions where they're growing gets warmer, there is no other place for them to grow. So to adapt to climate change, we need to look for genes from other wild species uh, that have drought tolerance or pest or disease resistance uh, that you can incorporate through a breeding program into Arabica. And once again, those traits, those characteristics that could make the coffee we drink more resilient in the face of climate change, those characteristics are in potentially wild Coffee species. coffee species, yes. and those are the ones that are threatened. Yes. You have any trips soon, perhaps to Madagascar or to your own coffee farm in Jamaica? <laughs> Sometime in May, but uh, next month I'm leading a trip for the Botanic Gardens to Mexico where we will be visiting a coffee farm in Mexico near Veracruz. It's been nice to talk to you and fascinating stuff. Oh, thank you. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Sharda Krishnan is Director of Horticulture at the Denver Botanic Gardens. She also leads the Center for Global Initiatives there. And we talked about a new study. It's in the journal Science Advances about wild coffee species at risk. We'll post a link later today at CPR.org. In Metro Denver, it can feel like everything is under construction, and that's actually not far off. The region just notched another record year of building almost $10 billion in new projects. But the metro area may have passed its peak, as we hear from CPR business reporter Ben Marcus. This is 15th and Welton, downtown Denver. Two huge red cranes have sprouted from what was a parking lot. When the cranes are finally done here, this will be a 30-story glass office building. This is the biggest new office project in the city. 
Denver was once a sea of these empty parking lots, but buildings have slowly filled them up over the years. No, there are still a lot of parking lots left to go. That's Ken Treppel, a professor at CU Denver and the guy behind the Denver Infill blog. He tracks all the activity in and around downtown, and he's been surprised by the seemingly unstoppable pace of development. I kind of was expecting things to slow down by now, but here we are about eight years into uh, economic expansion, and things are going well. And he says it's been a nice mix of building types. This is just what's under construction right now in downtown. 6,000 apartment units, more than a million square feet of office, and a 1,000 hotel rooms. But this won't last forever. Richard Branch, an economist at Dodge Data and Analytics, says building has started to slow in many cities, and Denver will soon follow. And so one should expect uh, this gradual pulling back through, you know, the next year and a half, two years. The construction labor force in Colorado has started to contract slightly, shedding about 3,000 jobs in summer. This is where government-funded projects can make a difference. There are billions of dollars in civic construction kicking off, including improvements at DIA, new lanes on I-70, and the new stock show complex. Ken Treppel says that could help the region weather a possible looming recession. Denver will be sort of in a pretty nice position where those public projects can help kind of keep things moving and, and keep people employed. That's important because commercial development would drop off sharply during a recession. In fact, publicly funded projects are already making a difference. If not for the construction at DIA, building in Denver would not have hit a record last year. Another sign that a bit of a slowdown is already in the works. Not that most people will notice. Construction companies are still very busy, which Branch says is because labor shortages mean building takes longer. Some projects started years ago are still under construction. So there's probably a lot of cranes still working, probably a lot of scaffolding, but in terms of new activity, I think we've started to see a pullback there. Branch predicts that newly started construction in the Denver area will be down 12% this year. That's still $8.5 billion in projects. Still a really, really good year. Just not a record. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. After serving in the military, how do veterans see the world? One way to answer that is to have them take pictures. It's why the Colorado Photographic Arts Center teaches veterans to use cameras. And their work is on display at the center's gallery in downtown Denver. Our producer, Michelle Fulcher, met one of these veterans, Amy Forestieri, at the gallery. Forestieri documented her work with Jesus on Colfax. The program serves the homeless and those living in poverty. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. So describe one of the pictures that we're seeing here. Tell me who's in the scene and what we're looking at. It's the first real picture I took when I joined the Jesus on Colfax ministry team. A man had passed away in his motel room. He had been deceased for four days before anybody noticed. Um, and passed away without any known friends or family. So the community got together and had a memorial and did a balloon release for him. And it was so humbling and amazing to witness. And in the photo, you can't tell who is a pastor, who is uh, maybe struggling with a a condition, a disability, an addiction. Everybody looks the same, and that there's no haves, have-nots. We're just us. That made an impact, and um, I actually signed up to be part of the team that day as well as a photographer. And that was my favorite photograph, and and difficult, so it's not wonderfully maybe composed. I got lucky, but it made me fall in love with the the black and white and being in the neighborhood and kind of the 
raw street photography style. This is one of the early photographs you took. How did you put it together? Luck. <laughs> I, uh, I really had no idea even how to really focus a camera, and it was night, so it was almost pitch dark when we uh, did the balloon release, and so I had to play with a bunch of knobs and take thousands of pictures, and it, it just sort of happened and uh, turned out beautiful and made me fall in love with wanting to learn more about photography as well as the community and finding ways to combine the two. So you're part of this veterans workshop. Setting the scene around us a little now that we've talked about your photos, uh, you had several colleagues and their photos are up as well. There's somebody who takes pictures of Cajun cuisine because that harkens back to childhood. Uh, There's a gentleman who takes pictures of Jeeps because he feels there's a community around that for veterans and Another community he's found now that he's out of the service. Do you think that veterans see things through a different filter, through different eyes in a way? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, even when you start, the playing field is level. They break you down and build you up. So everybody kind of knows what it feels like to start at the bottom and, and work their way up. That's and in then, training you're yes, talking Yes, in about. training. And then you have such a mishmash of cultures, uh, faith backgrounds, education. Uh, and then you combine that with going abroad and, and mixing in different cultures and communities. You just kind of understand and appreciate what we have going in America. I think get more sensitive to the hardships and the struggles that others face. I think you're a little bit more accepting, uh, flexible, and open-minded, and that's what I've seen in the veteran community, and there's a lot of veterans on Colfax. Talk to me about when you walked in to this class. What made you interested? Well, I'd been an engineer for a long time, and I actually had been just taking pictures, and I thought, well, I'll take a a class because I was transitioning out of the engineering world. And and then the veterans program came along. I thought, well, the worst they could say was no. And so I signed up and walked in and met phenomenal people and saw what they could create. I want to do that. I've been in love ever since, but it's only been about eight months. Where did you serve? I served in the Air Force from 96 to 2000 at Buckley Air Force Base. I did four years with the Air Force, and then I became um, a contractor and worked for the Department of Defense, so a total 20 years with the government. And then my husband is a retired Marine, and so we uh, in deep military uh, history and family and connectedness to the community, and this was an amazing opportunity to, to continue to stay linked in with the veterans. And so why did you leave that job with the government? I loved it. I was a systems engineer, a strategic planner, uh, but about three years ago, my stomach kind of stopped working. I have a condition called gastroparesis, so my stomach is pretty paralyzed, and I became primarily dependent on a feeding tube, and after a while, doing the nine-to-five standard cubicle kind of a job was too hard my body, and I have a a wonderful husband and daughter, and they, they needed they needed me to be healthy, and they urged me to to hang up my engineering hat, I guess my pencil and calculator, and uh, and try something new. So I completely went the opposite side, the, the arts, and I love new uh, techniques and ways to express ideas. How did you decide to take pictures of these folks from Jesus on Colfax? I'd heard of Jesus on Colfax Ministries, a pastor from Aurora. His wife had moved into the motel community on, on East Colfax in Aurora, 
and were uh, just showing up and loving people. And I, I had that seed in my mind and, and thought, if I get into this veterans program, I want my very first project to be a gift back to God. I, I said, I'm going to cold call them and see if I could have my first project be about their ministry. So I was accepted into the veterans program and cold called the pastor and his wife. And about four and a half months ago, we linked up and it's my favorite place, pretty much my favorite place in the world to be. And I'm there all the time now. How do you keep your distance as a photographer? So you've got these two roles, you belong to the ministry, and you're taking pictures, which is kind of an external kind of role. I I actually didn't separate them. I believed that if I wanted to see what God wanted me to see and feel and experience all that, I needed to be part of the community first before I really even started taking pictures. So I stayed in the motel, I spent a lot of time on Colfax, and I just created relationships where people were comfortable with me using the camera, and I finally just sort of kind of blended in. But I think it was the personal connection that gave me an access that I would have never got if I approached it as just a photographer. These are people who are going through really tough times. Do they want their pictures taken? Some. For the pictures that I've um, put up or I've shared, I make sure and get permission. I explain why I'm taking them, what I'm doing with them, and ask for permission. So I have people who don't want their face out there. Um, I take the picture and give them a print and and give it back, and it's still, they've allowed me into their stories. So it's it's a gift for me. So a a lot of these gifts I'll never be able to share, and I'm I'm fine with that. I, I appreciate that. Do the folks who agree to this and see their pictures, what's their reaction? They love them. I show them to them first. And, and they were happy. A lot of people were very camera shy. And I went there to show the best of what people had. I wanted them to see them the way I saw them. So when I gave them back a picture that showed their beauty, they were very more comfortable. And it's neat to go into the motel rooms and see the pictures hanging up. And even if nobody else sees them, they like them enough to put them on the wall. And that's a huge reward. I mean, these photos, as I'm looking at them, they're not... A- pretty in the way that we would think about pretty. They're, they're gritty, as we would expect on the street. Mm-hmm. Is it important to you to sort of show the, the problems, the challenges that these folks face? It's very important because that's a huge part of the story. I want to show the beauty and the tenderness and the importance of relationship and human contact But part of the story is the tough stuff, facing death, uh, addictions, and struggles. And these are struggles that a lot of us deal with and face. Many people just have more resources to hide them. So if the story really needs to be told by showing something that isn't glamorous and is hard to show, then I want to be able to show that in a way that brings respect, though, to the the people who are in the photograph. Uh, Is there a person or a situation that's really stuck with you as you've done this work? There there are many people that are permanently imprinted in my heart. One of my dearest friends, she's in one of the pictures, she's holding hands with the pastor praying. She she loves me so much and encourages my work and cheers me on and, and asks to critique the, the photographs and I'm so thankful to be able to, to show her off. Uh, when I'm missing online for maybe a few days, she saves up money to call me. When I'm sick or gone, Colfax notices. Yeah. 
these are difficult situations. Is there somebody that's just made you terrifically sad or given you a sense of what they're going through? Yes. Uh, one of the gentlemen in the, the pictures, um, he's praying with uh, members of our team. Uh, I actually photographed his end-of-life end journey. So through my camera, I watched him uh, lose his battle to cancer and uh, prepare to, to, to move on to, to heaven and watch him uh, just mourn for those he's leaving behind. And it was very sad to, to just watch that and very humbling and beautiful at the same time. And so I watched him, prayed with him, held his hand, and then was there to bury him. What sets your photography apart? I think because I have really deep backstories. I didn't start as a photographer. I think everything is, I have the story first most of the time, and then the visuals. They're different because they're more raw and native. Um, it's also because I'm really inexperienced as well, which is fine with me, but they're, I think they're more raw and native, and they're kind of, they are closer to the world that I see. Then maybe people have a little bit of the sense of the beauty that I see in others. Will you continue with the photography? Oh, yes. I have no idea how I could stop now. I'm, I'm hooked, and I don't know how I could leave Colfax. I have thousands and thousands of pictures, and I want to put a lot of these stories together in a book. Is there another topic you'd like to pursue? I think eventually I might um, maybe do a project on gastroparesis and some of the challenges that uh, Mike... That's my, the my, illness you yeah, have. Yes, yeah, a community that I... Uh, have a lot of contact with gastroparesis and feeding tubes, ce celiac disease. That one's because it's so personal and I can't really divorce myself from that topic. Figured that might be a project for later on. But I don't, I think I like the human, I like the human stories. I like the organizations that have an amazing vision but may need some help on the, capturing it visually. Or maybe I could help bring that to life by adding the context with the photos. Amy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Michelle. Amy Forestieri speaking with Colorado Matters producer Michelle Fulcher. Forestieri's photos are part of a new show called Personal Visions, Projects by Veterans at the Colorado Photographic Arts Center in Denver. The show runs through February 9th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a dream gig to perform with the Metropolitan Opera. And in just a few weeks, a young opera singer from Thornton will compete for the opportunity. Bass baritone Eric McConnell is currently artist-in-residence with Opera Colorado, and he's in the studio. Hi, Eric. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Tell us about this first song. What is it, and uh, where are you performing it? Ah, this is uh, an aria. This is Call of Flamme de l'Amour. It's a Bizet uh, opera uh, called La Jolie Fille de Perte. Um, uh, Bizet is more popularly known as the composer of Carmen, um, but this is one of his other operas, and it's a French aria that is uh, basically a... a glamorized drinking song a glamorized drinking song and where, where are you singing it set the scene for us uh this is this particular aria takes place in a bar um and it's he's actually a small one aria character i think the entire role is this aria in in the in the bar so it's, 
It's an easy gig. I heard you <laughs> speaking rather flawless French there. Oh, merci. And certainly a mastery of languages helps in oh, opera. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, as part of my education, um, I received uh, training in uh, not only language facility in Italian, German, and French, but also um, in diction in all of those languages. So Diction in all of those, mm-hmm. because that differs. Yes. Okay. Uh, briefly describe this competition with the Met Opera for us. What exactly do you win? Just like a chance sure. to appear on that stage or what? Yeah, well, um, there are uh, district uh, competitions all over the country. Uh, so I'm doing the Denver districts uh, end of February. And then the next day in Denver are the regionals. And so so the winners from Denver, I think uh, all over the West, will be at the regionals. And then the uh, finalists for that go to New York and sing on the Metropolitan Opera stage and uh, really uh, you know, live a dream. So it's, uh, it's a really wonderful opportunity just to sing for the, the competition. Okay. And so if you get past the competition and win, mm-hmm. what, what does it mean? What is the... Uh, well, if you like win the whole thing, yeah. Well, the 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 finalists actually sing on the Met stage with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, and um, really get the chance to sing for all these really really great judges who really if who really can put their career really in overdrive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Okay, and I understand that this is your third time competing. Uh, yes. How have you done previously? Uh... Last year I didn't do so well, um, but the year before I actually got um, I didn't I didn't final, but I did get the encouragement award, which is uh, award they award to one of the younger singers. I was one of the younger singers competing that year. How old were um, you? At that I point? was twenty three. I'm twenty five now. Um, so I uh, was, and the Met competition can go up to you can be thirty to, and still compete. So it's often a competition against a lot of older, bigger kids. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now you said that you didn't do too well last year. What happened? Oh, I just had flown in too late, and I actually um, had just gotten my offer from Opera Colorado that the morning of for this artist in residence uh, position that I'm in right now, and I was a little cocky. So, <laughs> but um, I'm hopeful that after a training with Opera Colorado since September, that uh, I will do well this year. Now I go to concerts, and I always hear. The artists talking about the dryness and the altitude mm-hmm. here. They're out of breath. They're, the air is dry. How do you deal with that as an opera singer? Or are you just sort of climatized? Well, since I was born and raised in Denver, yeah. um, I actually am a little more used to it. However, I did my um, undergrad in Miami and my graduate studies in Chicago, both of which are sea level. So coming back was a lot more difficult. However, now that I'm working here full time, whenever I go to an audition in New York City or Chicago or L.A., I get down there and there's so much oxygen. It's really great. So I I actually (laughs) sing much better than I normally would. Uh, I think athletes find this often. You know, yeah. They train at altitude, and then they go to Miami, and they, they feel bionic. So mm-hmm. it's true that vocal athletes uh, as well experience this. What kind of feedback have you gotten about your performance, your vocal abilities in, in the past competitions? Sure. That, that you've um, had to improve upon. Yeah, well, uh, one of the most important things in singing is language facility, and that is almost always any singer will get um, uh, feedback regarding that. Uh, and I, so, like, I, you're not, not pronouncing that. that word right? Yeah, or... well, or not so much that. It's more about lyric diction. It's about having what we call pure vowels. Um, w- when we speak English, we have our, our vowels are much more casual, and okay. especially in American English. Um, and so, in operatic singing, you have to have a very pure vowel, an E, A, A, O, U, 
uh, or anything in between that, that is very well-defined. Otherwise, uh, from in a big house like the Metropolitan Opera House or the Ellie Hawkins Opera House downtown, um, you won't be heard or understood. I wonder if, would you do a little before and after for me? Would you sing like a sloppy vowel and then sing <laughs> sure. Sing one the judges <laughs> would just rejoice over? Oh, gosh, okay. Uh, don't tell my voice teacher I'm doing this. Okay. Uh, um, a big example is if I were to sing the vowel E. Okay. Uh, a really lazy American way would be to sing it. It's not really clear what vowel exactly, that is. Exactly. It's in between I and E. However, if you sing a really pure vowel with good solid technique, it's going to sound more like E. And uh, that is uh, just in a bigger house, obviously in a radio studio, that's not going to make a huge difference. But in a huge house, um, those kind of vowels will get over a huge orchestra that you're singing over and get to every corner. Uh, so everyone in the audience can hear you without amplification. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is bass baritone Eric McConnell. He's currently artist-in-residence at Opera Colorado. And uh, next month, he'll be uh, competing for a chance to perform with the Metropolitan Opera. We've talked some about language and facility in a foreign language. Uh, let's hear more of your work. In this case, Italian. This is uh, Aprito and Po, I think. From Aprito the, and Po, yes. Okay, from the Marriage of Figaro. Queste chiamate dall'inganna si sensi a cui... Besides the language, what makes this a challenging piece? Oh, this is actually, um, this is uh, so this is Figaro's third aria from The Marriage of Figaro, which, by the way, Opera Colorado is putting on in May. Um, and uh, he is, uh, Figaro is very angry in this aria. And so it's really easy to allow the anger of the aria to get into your voice. Um, and that's one of the challenges we have as opera singers, especially right now, because um, acting is becoming such a huge part of opera. It wasn't always a huge part. It was mostly about the singing. Now it's huh. a, a combination, obviously, but you still have to create, you have to still maintain this uh, bel canto, is what we call it, style of technique, um, which still gives us these pure vowels and everything, but, maintain, but then add the angry color. <laughs> so when you say that acting is becoming more a part of opera, is that... A, a vocal demand, or is that like smile bigger, or, <laughs> or stand in a sort of more defensive pose? Sure, or? yeah, it's it's a combination of all factors. Uh, it is certainly about coloring the voice in, in whatever way you need to, but it's also, of course, about physical appearance on stage, looking the part, and you know, just really making sure that you are doing the correct things to make you look like an actual human while still doing this superhuman feat. Well, and it occurs to me that so many operas these days are simulcasts. Like you can go to a local movie theater mm-hmm. yes. and see a performance beamed in. Mm-hmm. So this is as much work for the present audience in the theater as it is for someone who might be on the other side yeah, of the absolutely. planet. Except, exactly. Especially with now all those, the, the Met in HD broadcasts. Uh, in they're, HD? They're, they're in, right in the <laughs> singer's face. So if you're not, you know, if you're not making the correct face or you're making one of those weird singer faces, uh, you'll be, you know, you'll be in trouble. So, <laughs> But of course, you make a weird singer face so that you get the right note. What yeah. an interesting tension. 
it's a it's a it's a very uh balanced profession you have to really do about three million things at once uh it's 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 tricky but it really is very rewarding now i don't normally comment on like the appearance of my guests but you are there is a fresh faced quality to you (laughs) and i have to say like to hear your incredible voice comes as a, a little bit of a surprise do people express surprised that such a voice comes from i actually i have gotten that comment okay. a lot I'm, I'm a very i have a young face i actually i have a beard right now so i'm trying to age myself a little more but the roles actually i play as a bass baritone are mostly fathers grandpas or you know evil devils uh or the devil himself um so and i'm often told that my i just you know I'm a little young looking however um makeup age makeup is a incredible thing and um i'm just working on you know trying to sing the roles i can right now at as at a 20 as a 25 year old and then you know sort of just continue working as i age because this is a career where you just sort of age into it and then never stop working although i have to say eric mcconnell i, I think of the devil as ageless that's true you know, <laughs> the devil could be a spring chicken or an old man yeah how did you get into opera oh that's actually a great question i um so I, as i as you said i was i was um Born and raised in Thornton, and I actually went to Thornton High School, go Trojans. Um, and I was a big part of the musical theater program there. Um, and um, really, my dream was to sing Phantom of the Opera, the title role in Phantom of the Opera. Okay. And uh, then puberty hit and had other ideas. My voice dropped an octave. And unfortunately, I no longer had uh, just, I no longer had the high notes. And so, but I still desperately wanted to perform. And uh, my voice teacher at the time, uh, her name's Carolyn Aldridge. She still teaches in Colorado. She um, suggested I look at more classical rep because there's more opportunities for lower voices there. And uh, I picked up an Italian art song, and the rest is history. It's fascinating. <laughs> I think that most young men are probably thrilled to have their voice drop, but that, yeah. that was a little bit of a loss for as, you. As a singer, yeah. It, well, if you're doing... Because more musical theater stuff, especially modern musical theater stuff, uh, tends to favor higher voiced men. Um, Whereas opera has a very diverse range of voice types. So were you ever able to be in Phantom? Uh, not yet. Okay. We'll see. If I ever was, I wouldn't be the Phantom, <laughs> I can tell you that. How has your voice changed in more recent years? Um, I mean, <clears throat> our, my, our voice continues to mature into our 30s. And so I'm like halfway there. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm still waiting. Like, I often joke, you know, I'm just sort of waiting around until I turn 30 and then my career can actually start. Um, but... Um, in the last several years, I mean, I've noticed every year my voice d- deepens and darkens and just gets more mature. And I, I feel it and it becomes easier for me to produce, you know, appropriate sounds uh, for for opera. Now, and, I understand what it means to deepen a voice. I don't know what it means to darken a voice. Sure. Well, uh, in, in, uh, in the opera world, we have lighter voices and darker voices. And actually, the goal is to create a voice that has chiaro and scuro, light and dark in Italian chiaroscuro, um, which sort of um, involves elements of both dark sounds and light sounds. Give me a light sound and a dark sound for contrast. Can we? Sure. Um, and I won't tell your vocal yeah. coach. <laughs> a light sound would be more like, ah, and a dark sound would be more like, ah. And so uh, the, the goal is to have something in between. Again, the, the, the um, ultimate goal is to have a sound that will be heard in a huge hall and having elements of both that lightness to get over bite through the orchestra and also darkness to get the true beauty of the voice really combine uh, to create a perfect quote unquote sound. 
Eric, it's been lovely chatting. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Eric McConnell is an artist-in-residence at Opera Colorado. On February 23rd, he'll compete in the Metropolitan Opera's National Council Audition for a chance to perform with the Met in New York. Before that, this weekend, though, he appears in an afternoon of American Song, takes place at the Opera Colorado Center in Englewood. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. That's Colorado Matters, and this is CPR News. Oh,